Would you open up your copy of God's Word this morning to the book of 1 Samuel? This morning, we will be in chapter 13, looking at the first 14 to 15 verses. As you find your place, um, let me just say what a joy it is to be with you today uh, and to celebrate on the Lord's Day. In 1777, George Washington had just experienced two humiliating defeats at Brandywine and at Germantown. This disenfranchised much of the Continental Congress, for they had lost faith in George Washington's leadership. They began to not trust him, and in fact, there were a group of factions that began to rise up, and they began to sort of stir some mumblings about Washington's leadership. One such individual who is one of the lesser-known founding fathers, a man by the name of Benjamin Rush, who was a medical practitioner, began to circulate a series of anonymous letters. He wrote one such letter to Patrick Henry, the author of Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death, and in so doing, he began to call for the resignation of George Washington. And he began to circulate two other names of, of men that existed within the military rank to take his place, to perhaps defeat the British and to perhaps advance the cause. Well, both of these men were not qualified. In fact, they were quite pugnacious at times. These were men who were not distinguished, if you will, in battle, but they were names nonetheless that Benjamin Rush began to push. A man by the name of Horatio Gates and Thomas Conway. Now, Gates was a notable military practitioner, but soon after his nomination of these letters that went by, he, defeated, he experienced defeat in another battle and sort of lost his way. But Conway, perhaps, was another peculiar individual that didn't go away quite easy. You see, he wished to advance in his own military rank and, in fact, went to George Washington demanding that he get a promotion, and Washington denied the promotion. And so Conway sort of did the runaround of Washington, and he actually goes to the Congress demanding that they would promote him and, and give him a higher rank. And in so doing, the Congress actually did the very thing that he asked them to do. Soon after that, Washington gets wind of the letters, and he confronts both of these men who begin to not desire a public battle and outcry, and so both of them back away. Conway ultimately ended up losing his life and, and living it in exile, rather, if you will. He was shot in the face in a duel where the man who shot him uh, stirred up over an argument on his belief and his view of who Washington was and so challenged him to a duel and shot him in the face. But Conway survived and he later spent the rest of his life in exile in the country of France. Now, these two men began to back off. As they began to challenge Washington, and as we know, as the story unfolds, Washington did not lose his rank. He did not lose his title, but even perhaps more so, at the end of the war, he was promoted to an even higher rank. Now, it's one thing to question the leadership of the general or the military man who leads you in times of battle, but it is perhaps another thing to question the man that God would put over you in the form of a prophet in Samuel and dictating his authority, God Almighty, through Samuel, and then you cry out and you want another leader and another king, and you want to be like all the other nations around you. 
And so we have seen over the past several weeks how God gave the people of God exactly what it is that they wanted and what it is that they asked for. And so we saw Saul become anointed as king. But in chapter 11 and chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, we see Saul enter into his first battle where he fights the Ammonites. And, and then after the successful endeavor of that battle in chapter 12, Samuel brings the people of God together. And they give credit where credit is due, and they thank God for this victory through Saul, but Samuel doesn't really let them off the hook in chapter 12, if you will, where he brings the people of God together, and he addresses them, and, and he reminds them that this is not an answered prayer to you, if you will, but rather this is punishment for your sin, and you wanting and desiring a king like all the other nations. God was going to give you the very thing that you were asking for. And so Samuel addresses the people of God, and he calls them down in chapter 12. And we pick up this morning in chapter 13 where the story continues. And if you would, read along with me where it says in verse 1, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel. This is one of the most problematic, linguistically difficult texts that exist within the Old Testament. And scholars go back and forth, and some of you that have different translations and reading from the NIV or the NASB, just bear with me just for a moment. We can wrestle with these more difficult things even during this brief time that we have this morning. But the English Standard Version renders it, Saul lived for one year and then he became king. The New International simply says this, Saul was 30 years old and he reigned 42 years. This understanding of the NIV was based on the Septuagint, which is a third century Greek text where they take the textual variants that, that exist there. And so the NIV says Saul was 30 years old. But if you're reading old school, even older than the NIV, and look at the New American Standard, they sort of have a different take on it as well, where it says Saul was 40 years old and then he began to reign. And the difficulty that exists there within the Hebrew it's problematic for us, but there's an answer and there's a solution. Notable scholar John Woodhouse suggests that the text means in, in this moment, this idea of he lived for one year just simply means at a certain age, Saul became king. Now, I think it's more likely that Saul was around 40 years old when he became king. Because we see coming up in this next chapter, his son Jonathan, who was his biological son, was off fighting battles with him. So the probability of a 30-year-old king with a 15-year-old son leading the armies of Israel is highly unlikely, if you will. And so we wrestle with this idea that around 40 years old, he began to reign and he reigned for two years. Now, those two years are encompassed in chapters 13, 14, and 15. This is the legitimate reign of Saul as the king of Israel. But as we see, the legitimate reign of Saul comes to a quick end. The text goes on in verse 2, and it says, Saul then chooses 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. And Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines, they heard of it. 
And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all of Israel heard it that Saul had defeated the garrison, a thousand plus men of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. What we begin to see is over a year later, from the time that Samuel instructs Saul to do what is right and, and to do what his hands see fit, to go and, and to travel to Gilgal and, and to go to war with the Philistines. We saw this last week in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 7 and 8, where the text reads, just to remind us of this, that when these signs meet you, do what your hands find to do. And behold, Samuel says, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait. So Samuel instructs Saul to go deal with the problem that God had identified and seen, that the people had seen as the enemy of God begins to encroach the camp and the people of God. And Saul decides to not follow in obedience, to do what was right in his own eyes, to, to take on a posture of passivity. But finally, we see in verse 4, he finally ends up to where he was instructed to go, into the location and into the place where it was that God had called him to deal with the, the problem that existed, that God had raised him up. And so finally, over a year down the road, he finally makes it there. Friend, can I just say to you this morning, that whether it takes you a year or two years or a month or a day, that when you hear from the Lord our God, and He instructs you and He tells you to do something, that it is never too late to begin practicing obedience. That it has never been too long and it has never been too wearisome, that it is never too late to begin to walk in faithfulness, to walk in obedience, that whether it's a year or two or even further from that, it is never too late to be obedient and on mission with God. And so he picks up in verse 5 and he says, And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped to the east of Beth Haven when the men of Israel, verse 6, saw that they were in trouble for the people were hard-pressed. It says the people began to hide themselves in the caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and cisterns. And some Hebrews even crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of God in Gilead. For Saul was still at Gilgal, and all of the people followed him trembling. This is quite incredible of the people of God and their posture in this moment. For we had seen in chapter 11 and even in previous chapters, God faithfully time in and time out answering the prayers and the cries and, and the hearts of the people of God. God showing up and show himself to, to be strong and sovereign and, and capable and a deliverer and a redeemer. Yet too often and more often than not, we find the people of God sort of reverting back to their posture of lack of faith and lack of trust. And here they, they have themselves surrounded and they begin to flee. And they begin to hide and they begin to cower. And friend, I think it's an interesting 
question that the text poses for us in this moment. God promises them prior to this that he will be with them always, but why would God now put them to the test yet again? And I think the answer to that therein lies with God often putting his people through tests with severe trials and and often with just mundane trials, ordinary trials. Why? So that he can perfect us as his people and he can make us into the people that he wants us to be. And so we constantly find ourselves as the people, wandering in and out of trial and and tribulation and and hard times and difficult times and and uncertain times and and times in which we cannot see straight and know to the right or to the left or up and, and down, but God will put us in those places so that we would grow in our obedience and in our testimony to him when I was early on beginning out in ministry, my first pastorate. My first two years were incredibly difficult. In fact, the first two years in being in the pastorate, I I didn't want to do it anymore. I received criticism. Some was fair, some was unfair. I experienced a harshness and and I experienced a critical spirit. And, And there were times where I just said to myself, is this really worth it? Is this really what ministry is all about? Because see, for so long in my life, I thought that the the goal of following Jesus was just simply he was gonna make my life easier. And he was going to call me to a group of people and it was going to be as simple as, as what I heard in seminary that, that if you just go with a sincere heart and just love people, they'll love you back. Well, friend, I wish it was always that simple. I wish it was just as simple as just loving them and, and knowing that they will love you back. But friends, you know as well as I do that that isn't always the case. But as my years got underneath my belt, as my perspective began to change, and I began to look back on those first two years as two of the most difficult years in my life, I look back on those difficult years with joy. I look back on on those trials and, and tribulations because what I didn't realize was in the moment God was perfecting something in me. He was telling me places and, and he was dealing with the, the deep darkness with it in my heart and he was saying, listen, Drew, this is where I want you to change and, and this is where I want you to grow and this is where I want you to adjust because the biggest problem for you in that moment were not the people that I was pastoring, but it was the sin that existed with inside my heart. And so I had to come to terms with that. And God dealt with that sin, and he's still dealing with that sin and that pride and that foolishness and that arrogance. But Saul gets to the place where he's supposed to be in verse 7, and the people of God are trembling. And it says in verse 8 that he waited seven days. The time appointed by Samuel that we read in chapter 10, but it says Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Can I tell you, 
As many of you would testify today, as Saul would testify in this moment, God placed him in this situation for a time just like this. And, and though the enemies would encroach him, here was the posture that God wanted Saul to take. I want you to go and sit. And I want you to wait for seven days. And I don't want you to do anything. And I want you to lean into me and, and to seek me and to pursue me, but I, I don't want you to do anything. You wait for my prophet Samuel to come. Just sit and be still for a moment. Friend, I would contend with you this morning that just sitting still for a moment is perhaps one of the most difficult things for many of you to do here this morning. In the waiting waiting on God to answer your prayer, waiting on God to hear you, waiting on God to deliver you from something and, and to something. But yet this is where God often has us, does he not? Waiting for seven days, longing for him to be there. And, and listen, friend, do not be like Saul. Do not wait to the point of frustration where you begin to take matters into your own hands. Wait upon and for the Lord. Friend, God's greatest works are often accomplished in the most menial ways. Some of the strongest ways that we could testify to the goodness of God happen in the midst of the waiting, in the period of the seven days where we're crying out to him to answer us and to deliver us from our enemies or from our sin. As one author Put it, anything in life that is worthwhile is going to require you to wait. And if you're here today and you say, well, I don't like waiting. Well, can I remind you this morning that the Lord knows our thoughts and he knew that you just thought that. And so therefore, he's probably going to put you in a place of waiting. Stop it. Stop thinking about waiting. Stop thinking about it in the context, if I can just get through this season in my life and understand that God has you right in the middle of this season right now so that he can form in you something that is good and, and something that is changing and something that is eternal. God has you in the midst of your waiting for a reason. And the reason why many of us don't like to wait is because we just, we like to, especially if we're task-oriented people, we like to busy ourselves with tasks. Because if I can busy myself with tasks, then I don't have to come to terms and to grips with my thoughts. If I can busy myself with things to, to do, then I don't have to deal with my thoughts or the position of my heart, and, and I can sort of forget about the, the issue that is before me. If I can busy myself with things to do and not wait and, and put it on myself as opposed to waiting on the Lord, then I won't have to deal with the sin that's within me or, or the sin that's around me. Friend, the busier we are, the more important we seem to ourselves and to others. Busyness for many people is often just a, a form of, of a way in which we can avoid one another. Oh, I'm too busy. You worked with that guy, you, you lived in the house of that person, and, and all they do is there's one thing more to do, and it, they never stop, they never cease, they never just wait and, and are not fully present. Oftentimes it's the busiest 
people, and I'm speaking as one of them, that are the most full of themselves. They think too highly of themselves and their task and, and perhaps their mission. They think too more, much of, of others and perhaps what they would think of them if they weren't being busy and they weren't doing more. Friends, sometimes the season that God calls us into is just to sit and to wait. One of the, the ways in which my wife and I, we loved COVID. Can I say that from this pulpit and not sound blasphemous? Is because it caused everything to cease for a season. It caused us to, to be together as a, as a family. Why? Because we couldn't do sports and we couldn't go here and we couldn't go there. And so we would just sit at the house and we would walk and talk and play games with one another. No more extracurricular activities, no more sports games to get to. We just got to be with one another. Amen. And it was a season of rest. And I think one of the greatest challenges of the church moving forward in the next decade is, is remembering that season of rest and finding that balance moving forward where we are not the people that are trying to therefore then go and to add all of those things that God said, stop and cease and rest. We, in our own way, just like Saul, are seeking to grab those activities and to put them back on the mantle and put them back on the place where they once occupied because we want what we want more often than not, and we want to be busy doing things for the Lord rather than being with Him. Amen. And so Samuel has a word to Saul, and he has a word for us this morning. Verse 10, he says, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel says, what have you done. What have you done? And I'll be honest with you, the first time I ever read in my life the story of this narrative and Saul forfeiting his kingship and, and his anointing of the Lord, I thought Samuel surely seems quite harsh. After all, Saul did make a sacrifice to the Lord. He did sort of attempt to participate, if you will, in worship, at least for a moment. He, he did a good thing and, and he did a noble thing. And some might even say a, a justifiable thing. But Samuel says, what have you done? Connects back to that Genesis 3 account, does it not? Adam and Eve fall from sin and they flee from the presence of God. God saying, what have you done? done. Saul says, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and I saw that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had, had mustered and they had gathered around us, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself. And I offered the burnt offerings. Verse 13, and Samuel says to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For when the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue, the Lord sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And so Samuel rose, and he went up from Gilgal. 
in this moment, what Samuel is doing for Saul is he's telling Saul that the little things matter. The little bitty, seemingly insignificant acts of obedience and acts of worship, they matter. And when God says to do something, no matter how big or, or perhaps how small, what God cares about is that we would follow him in the big things and in the little things. I don't know about you, but it's easier for me to trust God in the big things. It's easy for me to trust God when I have nowhere else to turn and, and no one else to look to. It is more often than not, God is forgotten in my own life and perhaps in yours in the small things, in the menial task, in the acts of obedience. But notice how Saul sort of begins to justify his actions. You weren't here in the allotted days that you said you were going to come. And as soon as he finishes the offering, there Samuel was fulfilling the promise and fulfilling, thus saith the Lord from chapter 10. What Saul was failing to grasp in this moment was that character was the thing that God cared about. Integrity before him was the thing that, that God valued, that God would say something and that he could, he could trust Saul enough to do the very thing that, that he had asked. And it's almost as if in this moment, Saul's like, well, I, I did pretty good. I, I almost followed you to the letter of the law. Did I, did I not? And brothers and sisters, I would just say to you this morning that almost obedience is not obedience. It's a good effort. Can you imagine if you looked to your spouse and you said, well, I fell into temptation with another woman or another man, but I only did it once and I had the opportunity a hundred different times. I, I almost was faithful to you a hundred percent of the time. I almost was, was on target. I almost was, was good enough to you. Friends, our spouses would, would look us square in the eye and just say almost is not obedience in that moment. Almost is not good enough. The Lord expects his leaders, he expects his people to obey his commands. And what Saul did in this moment as an act of worship, it revealed his beliefs about God and, and what God wanted. And, and it revealed the lack of obedience and desire so much so that, that God tells Saul that I will anoint another one, a man, after my own heart. A man who will follow me in the small things and in the big. And what we see from Saul in this moment as he begins to lose his kingship and his authority over the people of God is that this disobedience for Saul results in a loss of privilege as the king and it results in the loss of a blessing from his king. We live in a day and age in which we tend to minimize sin and minimize disobedience and minimize the idea that there are often repercussions for what we do and what we say or whether when we don't say anything, and we should. And sometimes it's what we don't do. And there is a forfeiture at times, though God is rich in mercy and slow to anger, where we forfeit the blessings of God because of disobedience. Friend, this morning, I don't know what you've been disobedient about or obedient to. 
I don't know the inward workings of your heart and where you stand before our Lord this morning. But I would contend with you that every human being in this room today and every human being watching online today at some point in their life has failed to live up to the standard of obedience that God has given us. That we've chosen our own way like Saul. That in our small, seemingly insignificant view of, of God, we, we have minimized and we have said that our great good God is, is small and tiny and He is impotent and He is unable and he doesn't listen, and he doesn't hear. And so then we choose sin. And we choose our own way. Small matters in the kingdom of God of, of negligence are often considered by God to be a major indicator of a heart that is not devoted to him. Small things that you do and don't do are often windows at times and to where our hearts and where our minds really are and, and what controls us and what consumes us. But the good news of the gospel this morning, friend, is that the God that we sing about today, the God that we read about in his word, the God of, of the Bible that was there, even in the presence of Saul and speaking through Samuel, and whom we will see orchestrate providentially events over the weeks to come, that same God today is alive and he is well. And he has taught us to preach a message of gospel proclamation that is redemptive in nature, that it is bringing people that are dead in their sins and it is making them alive in Christ. And that our obedience comes not from working it out, but rather from the obedience that Christ has demonstrated on the cross of Jesus, that we have his obedience in our life. I can be obedient because he was obedient first. And in this holiday of freedom and celebrating liberty and remembering the freedoms that we have in this country. Friend, can I remind us of an old truth that I don't know who said it, but it's been around a long time. That as Christ has died to set the captives free, that you are free today, but don't forget this about your freedom. Freedom is not the ability to do whatever it is that you want, but rather it is the ability to do what you should. We take liberty with our Western eyes and it just simply means I get to do whatever it is that I want. That within my conscience before the Lord, you don't judge me and I won't judge you that there is freedom in Christ. And there is certainly an aspect of that, that we represent those things. But freedom is not that God has set you free from the chains of sins and bondage so that you can then go and repeat the same sins and mistakes over and over and over and over again. But rather freedom and being free is understanding that in that freedom, God propels me forward to then do as I ought to do and do as I should and to walk in obedience before him because this is where I will flourish and thrive and this is where I will experience blessing and the goodness of our God all the days of our life. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have created us for purpose and cause. You have given us, because of your son Jesus, the ability to, to know that through him that we can know what true freedom actually is. 
And we can celebrate that freedom as a country today, but more importantly, Father, today we can celebrate the freedom that comes in, in knowing you that you didn't just save us from things, but you saved us to things so that we can understand about what we should do and how we should use that freedom. So Father, I pray that in this room today, I pray that if there is someone here today that does not feel free from their sin, Father, I pray that through your spirit, you would set them free. That you would break loose the chains and the bondage and the condemnation and the shame. Father, and you would restore them to your side. So Father, would you help us be men and women after your heart this morning. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name.